Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain with a lot of different stories today. Mm -hmm. We have great guests who are going to tell us about things like developments in Haiti, Mm -hmm. which you called last week. Kind of took me by surprise. (coughs) Did I? Yeah, you called it last week. Over the weekend, uh, both the U.S. government and the Canadian government said that they would send armored personnel carriers to help reinforce the Haitian police. Yeah. I don't even want to venture into what that means. Yeah. Also over the weekend, the U.N. drew up a proposed U.N. Security Council resolution that would um, allow for the creation of a rapid deployment force Mm -hmm. to be sent to Haiti. Mm -hmm. That scares the daylights out of me. It. I wonder also, and I have a, this is a genuine question. I really don't know if there is an answer or not or what the answer is. Maybe one of our guests can tell us, but is that, are they doing this? Do they not want to send the UN peacekeepers to Haiti specifically because of what happened before? Or is this like rapid deployment force normal? Because it seems to me when the UN, when the UN wants to send forces to a country, they have the, they have the blue helmets, right? Right. Right. But th- is this them. just because they messed up so badly last time and m- could, messed could up covering, it. what, a million deaths from cholera since that's 2010 right. when they, they That's right. They created or, cholera yeah, in yeah. Haiti. Um, yeah. Don't know, but we will ask that. I'm going to ask it's that good, if I remember. Good question. Yeah. Um, you know, Chip Gibbons, who we used to have on the show, uh, we don't so much anymore, but Chip follows these issues. And he tweeted something that was very simple and very profound today. Does this mean we're going to war in Haiti? Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be a police action. <laughs> That's right. Which is That's definitely right. not a war when the U.S. says it's a police action, but is definitely a war when another country does it. To me, the parallel yeah. is the, an, an interesting parallel parallel here uh, might be Syria. Yeah, it's right. Not to say the two situations on the ground are the same. Sure. But, you know. Asking another government to send help uh, mm-hmm. to support the government there against, you know, what it's uh, and again in the case in Haiti, they're calling uh, they're saying that the country is being torn apart by criminal gangs. Uh, you know, many guests have told us the application of the term criminal gang is really intended to um malign groups that are attempting to organize mm-hmm. uh, a political and social revolution. Right. Um, but as long as you can call them criminal gangs, you can get other countries to come and send send forces to help you shoot them more efficiently. Yeah, that the groundwork was laid this weekend. Yeah. We've um, mentioned. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, should we should we tell our guests what we're going to be talking about later in the show? We're going to talk about yeah. um, uh, nuclear exercises by NATO. Right. And another example right. of one exercise is not a provocation, but the other exercise of the same thing is definitely a provocation. NATO is launching its nuclear exercises today. Uh, Russia is reportedly going to do the same sometime this week or be end of the end of the month. We're going to talk about that. There were very big protests in Paris over uh, the cost of living. Not the first we have seen in Europe, not the last. Not the last. We're going to ask the key. We're going to talk about uh, the implications of those. They're calling for a general strike in Paris or in France tomorrow. Yeah. Don't know if that's going to happen. Um, but I ha- I was not aware. Had you been aware that half of the workers at France's oil refineries are on strike already? No, yeah. I did not know that. Me neither. Good grief. Yeah. We're also going to talk about the launch of um, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, 
I can't, I can't, I don't know what is the word for every five years, but the thing, the conference they get together to have every five years, uh, uh, I, I'm trying to think of the word, but I can't. Um, we are going to get into that and we are going to talk about some of the wilder police uh, brutality and police uh, mm-hmm. uh, bad action. Yeah. My brain isn't working this Monday. Bad actions Over, by the cops. The the yeah. spate of stories we saw about police overreach. That's right. With our with our final guest. So that's what you're going to hear later. Yes, but first we're going to talk about serial killers. Oh yeah. Last week, over the last couple of weeks. We have mentioned several times that there was a serial killer loose in Sacramento. Well, over the weekend, the police made an arrest in that case. And even even more dramatically, I should say, they caught the guy in the middle of the night while he was in the midst of hunting for his next victim. And the cops used the word hunting. He had a mask around his neck that he just needed to pull up. And he had the murder weapon in the car, in the back seat of the car. Okay. So they got him. Yeah. Meanwhile, community leaders in Kansas City have been telling police there for months that there's a serial killer in Kansas City praying. Excuse me. I'm fighting this cough. It's just taking everything fighting. I have. We've been fighting it for <laughs> such a long time. Preying on black women. And the cops have dismissed their concerns, saying very harshly, look, black women go missing all the time, right? Awful. Awful. Well, what happened was a young black woman who had been kidnapped with two friends by the serial killer escaped from his basement with a steel collar around her neck and a padlock on it. He had already murdered her two friends. He had murdered several other women before them. He left to take his six-year-old to school. Ah, horrifying. Uh Uh-huh. We were saying there was a dude in Cleveland? Cleveland. Who did basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. Didn't he live with his wife and child upstairs? Yes, he did. He definitely had a wife who just said, he told me not to go in the basement, so So I didn't didn't go. go. Yep, and he had women down there. Wild. I would like to point out that producer Ben has told me the word for an event that occurs every five years is quinquennial. So there you go. I never heard that. I would have guessed like something new every day. I never heard that word before. Um, let Let me lay something on you, John. Guess who's on The View this morning? Uh-oh. Right now, as we were walking... No, it's not an uh-oh, I don't think. Okay. Uh, as, as we were walking in, Chelsea Manning on The View. Of all places. Talking about her new memoir. Yeah. Wild. That's pretty crazy. You know, the memoir is getting wide play. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been answering questions from friends of mine. Oh, about this, about about the memoir. Yes. Why is Chelsea Manning not included in all these whistleblower groups and whistleblower circles Mm -hmm. that we have? Um, That's been Chelsea's uh, decision. Mm. She um, does, she, she does acknowledge that she's a whistleblower. Yeah, I would think. I mean, and has really maintained. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, may, stayed steadfast. I don't, I don't remember when the last time she was in jail uh, over some grad jury charge. It was, it was within the core. last two years. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hardcore. You know, it, we said on the show, or maybe I was still doing the show with Lee Stranahan at the time, but just to tell, just to show you how tough Chelsea Manning is, all she had to do to get out of jail was to appear before the uh, grand jury and say, in answer to every question, I don't recall. She didn't do that. She refused to testify. And that shows some real strength of character. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but but she just doesn't. She's just not a part of the you know whistleblowing community. She has chosen instead to uh, to focus on the trans community and the LGBTQ uh, community, and and that's where she spends most of her time. This book is the product of three or four years of hard work. Uh, I will say that it's getting a lot of play, and I don't know who the publisher is, but whoever it is, they're spending money on marketing. So I think it's great that she's on the the View. I hadn't even seen that. Yeah. Um, she was in the New York Times over the weekend. It was a hell of a trajectory, yeah. Yeah. It's a very big deal. Good. Yep. So ye. The artist formerly known as Kanye West. I believe it's Yay, Grandpa. Oh, is it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, see, what it do I know? Matter. It's I said Dr. Dre for like five years you before my brother not. said, listen, I got to tell you, it's not oh Dr. Dre. <laughs> what do I know? Uh, <laughs> so oh. Kanye West announced over the weekend that he's buying Parler. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parler is a failing conservative slash libertarian social media platform. Yeah, I think Parler was like the original uh, right. right-wing Twitter. Exactly Gab right. Gab was the right-wing Facebook. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, the the wife of Parler's founder gushed, what did you say? Yay? Yay. Yay. Yay will never again fear being thrown off another platform because of his views. Yeah, because he got thrown off of Twitter yeah. and I think Facebook for saying he for, was going to go de- death con three on the Jewish people. Right. Which you he can't hates Jews. Say. That's why he got thrown off. I don't know what Kanye West is in, is not a sane man. No, he's not. So I don't know that you can even take anything he says to actually express a particular position. Right. Uh, it's just, and I think the people who are attempting to, uh, you know, use Kanye as a spokesperson or something right. uh, for a, politi- a political point of view or anything else are really, uh, yeah. is, it, are obviously just looking for some attention that he can bring them because of his wealth and stardom. This is not, you know. One of those Kardashian sisters, I can't keep them straight. Mm-hmm. I think she was the one married to the basketball player. Mm-hmm. She tweeted over the weekend I love you. You're the father of my, you know, nieces and nephews, but you've got to stop. You're clearly having a mental episode right now. You need to find your doctor and get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I mean, they've said that periodically throughout yeah. this entire saga, which I, I will say I'm glad, you know, like we shouldn't be, Kanye West is not a sort of, shouldn't be really a political discussion again, no. because a lot of these positions are uh, just a product of him, obviously, being in the middle of some kind of mental yeah, uh, breakdown. That's right. I will say also, though, I mean, Kanye, not the only one uh, making waves by posting about Jewish people online. You saw the Trump Trump post. Oh, my gosh. Trump. How many times does this guy have <laughs> to step Jews, in it? U.S. Jews should be more grateful. Yeah. I also, you know what I think? I mean, this is getting a, like, U.S. Jews have to get their act together is the thing that's getting a lot of attention. Uh, this, the fact that he said, you know, evangelicals are far more appreciative of what he's done for Israel yeah. than American Jews. He doesn't uh, get it. Why is nobody, why is nobody enjoying the beautiful line uh, that uh, Trump said he has the highest approval rating in the world and he could easily be prime minister of Israel? <laughs> Oh, my God. Those living in Israel are a different story. Highest approval rating in the world could easily be PM. It's great. Oh, my God. Go for it. Go ahead and do it. Run for prime minister of Israel. Please, please (laughs) do. You know, he said he said something like this in the debates, too. Mm. Like, he just can't understand that American Jews 
that the, the loyalty of American Jews is to the United States. Yes. Before it is to Israel. He just can't understand. Like he'll do something for Israel. He'll move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And then his popularity rating doesn't go up among American Jews. And he can't figure out why. Yeah. Look what I did for them. Well, yeah. you didn't do anything for them. You did for the Israelis. Which is pretty. It's yeah. It's a pretty anti-Semitic attitude very, to carry around. Very anti-Semitic yeah. attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Delightful. You would think that his Orthodox Jewish son-in-law would steer him, you know, on these issues. but. He doesn't. We're going to talk later in the show about violence in Iran. It's getting worse and worse. There was a major riot at Evan Prison outside of Tehran. Uh, on It began on Friday. It's apparently still ongoing. Evan Prison is notorious in that really since uh, the, the time of the Shah, this is where political prisoners are kept and frequently where political prisoners are executed. There are at least eight dead. The Iranians are saying eight. The opposition is saying 11. Um, they're saying that prison guards are firing guns and firing tear gas into locked cells at people just sitting ducks. Now um, that There's a big fire going on. That kind of reporting sounds to me like babies in incubators getting, you know what I mean? Like, why are the police going to shoot yeah. people? I mean, yeah, police. Police are, maybe you could say police are the same everywhere, but like just executing people in a locked cell yeah. is sounding a little, make sense. it sounds a little hyperbolic to me. I'm not there. I think you're probably I don't know, right. But I think there's, I mean. We would see higher death tolls if they were. Well, I think that. what's going on in Iran is like on one hand, I think that there are, uh, I think people in Iran are uh, protesting and demonstrating their uh, uh, dissatisfaction yeah. with a lot of things in in their lives, and I have absolutely no doubt yeah. that a lot, you know, that that there are genuine grievances that are driving people to protest. It is also extremely useful to the United States for there to be unrest in Iran, and it's extremely useful for the United States to make it appear as bad as po- what's going on in Iran as as bad as possible. Yes. Right. So you can't just have people demonstrating in the streets there has to be uh you know cartoonish brutality right. by the you know and so i feel like there's that happens a, a lot. you have to w- walk a line when you are trying to understand what's going actually going on there coming to you through the filter of and I don't uh, think such we propagandized western reporting right. yeah because of the media that we have easy access to i don't think we can really understand what's going on in in iran mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you have to sort of put it together i guess Using a lot of foreign sources, too. Mm-hmm. And before we get to our first guest, I wanted to say that there's a new Siena poll that was released today showing Republicans pulling ahead of Democrats nationally in a generic congressional poll by Italia of 40, 49 to 45. That could be enough for what the Republicans are calling a red wave in congressional races, traditionally because of gerrymandering and um, uh, redistricting. A Republican advantage of four points equates roughly to a Republican pickup of 10 to 20 House seats. Um, with that said, I think the reason this is happening is because the Democrats are just not focused on what is important to voters overall. You know, we're focused on... on or they're perceived not to be focused on that. Or, or they're perceived you know, not to be focused. Or, sure. You know, both can be true, right? Sure, yeah. sure. You know, it's women's rights slash abortion... It's, uh, you know, January 6th and you look at these polls and almost a majority of Americans are most concerned about inflation and the economy. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. 
So we have three weeks and a day until the midterm elections. We'll see where this goes in the meantime. It will be really interesting because, you know, uh, six months ago, eight months ago, going to be an absolute bloodbath, right? Yeah. Bloodbath for Democrats. That's right. And then in the last two or three months, it moved. It started to seem like, oh, hey, who knows? Like maybe, maybe they're hitting their stride. Maybe Biden's getting some good headlines. People are feeling more positively. Uh, people are feeling very negative about Republicans after the Dobbs decision. But uh, yeah, it might not last. Mm-hmm. They might have they might have peaked too soon. We'll see. I'm not. I'm not that making any is predictions. Right. Well, we are going to take a very short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to come back with Jeremy Kuzmarov. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we're going to talk about uh, tens of thousands of people protesting in France over the weekend, uh, angry about the cost of living there. We're going to talk about nuclear exercises by NATO and reportedly by Russia. And we are going to talk about what the international community is preparing to do in Haiti Joining us for all these conversations is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine. Thanks for being here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So today we've got the launch of Steadfast Noon, which is NATO's nuclear exercise. It's going to involve 14 countries. It's going to run until the end of the month. These exercises were planned Uh, So they are not being covered as though they are a nuclear provocation to Russia, which is, you know, how we like to describe most military drills by other countries, just not us. All other countries are doing provocations and we're just doing totally regular planned military drills. Um, And also, I mean, at least according to CNN, uh, Russia is supposed to launch its own planned nuclear exercises later this month, which, of course, are a totally different character. Uh, This is from the CNN story. Speaking to a senior defense official, the defense official said, We believe that uh, Russian nuclear rhetoric and its decision to proceed with this exercise while at war with Ukraine is irresponsible. Brandishing nuclear weapons to coerce the United States and its allies is irresponsible. So your exercises are irresponsible and our exercises are the responsible ones. I wanted to ask what you think about the coverage of uh, nuclear weapons has been like over the past couple of months, and in particular, the past like two weeks, because you have nonstop speculation as to whether or not Russia might use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. And you have outlets like The Atlantic over the weekend offering key indicators for people to watch from home to assess the likelihood of their use. And, you know, of course, All of this reporting has a a lot of propaganda value for the West, uh, but that exists completely separately from, uh, you know, the the possibility or not that any nation is going to choose to use a nuclear weapon at any time. And I don't think the one should mean we discount the other because they have been used in the past by the United States. And so I I wanted you to just give us your thoughts on on how you think the nuclear question's been discussed in english media and and if you think the press should really be asking some different questions than they are 
Well, absolutely, yeah. I, I think there are two aspects. One, yeah, it's part of this kind of fear-mongering and demonization of Russia that, you know, Putin's a madman, he invaded Ukraine, and now he's willing to use nuclear weapons. And this is, you know, being used to justify the massive U.S. arms provisions to Ukraine and preparedness for war. You know, as you were describing, these military exercises, I mean, I think right now there's preparations in place for, for World War III, which some of the neoconservatives seem to have wanted. That's all part of their design, it seems. Uh uh, these people are, I, I think, uh, possibly certifiably insane. <laughs> and the other feature, yeah, I think you're, you're pointing out to is the one side that the coverage is so completely one sided. It makes it look like, you know, Putin's the madman and he might strike because they're not discussing what the United States has been doing, uh, not only to provoke Russia, you know, with these, you know, steadfast uh, exercise that you're discussing, uh, but also, I mean, it was the Trump administration that pulled out of the INF agreement in 2019. I haven't heard, uh, although I, you know, I haven't tortured myself and watched CNN uh, that often recently, but I don't think many of their commentators are discussing that. I mean, with the U.S., I mean, th there was an arms control, nuclear arms control infrastructure in place, you know, starting the 80s with the, the INF Treaty. It was a great treaty, and there are other treaties, such as the START Treaty. That was a step forward. And that was, you know, a conservative Reagan administration managed to sign a lot of those treaties. Uh, and it was Trump that eviscerated, not Russia. So, I mean, that alone, you know, shows you where where the you know recent U.S. administrations—they're not at all committed to arm control. They're the ones who who, who uh, you know repealed that agreement. So, and yeah, they're they're not discussing uh, every. I mean, the other thing is, you know, I I had an article on this hearing when they the Biden administration appointee to head Stratcom is named Anthony Cotton. And in the hearing, he was talking openly. He was asked, you know, would you use a nuclear weapon? And he said, you know, my job is to prepare the, the hundreds because he oversees the American nuclear arsenal. And he said his job was to prepare them to use nuclear weapons. And then he was asked by Joni Ernst about Taiwan. If, you know, if, uh, uh, you know, if uh, the U.S. is losing control over Taiwan and China seems to have the upper hand now, would you use a nuclear weapon? And he said, we have to be flexible. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's U.S. official. And I said this sound like, you know, the film Dr. Strangelove and the character Jack, you know, uh, Jack the Ripper, I think, uh, was the, you know, one who was a caricature of this war-loving general who uh, thinks nothing of using nuclear weapons. And we seem to have Jack Rippers uh, in our, you know, top echelon of our military and government. And, uh, you know, I mean, the insane one seems to be on our side right now. And, and there have been ta open talk of, an you know nuclear first strike and these nuclear tip you know some are under the illusion that because some of the weapons are just nuclear tip weapons they wouldn't be destructive of a full scale nuclear weapon but that's obviously an illusion there would be you know thousands uh, killed uh, if one of those weapons god forbid was used so uh, i mean there's no critical uh, perspective on what's been going on in, in the united states in the media it's it's completely one sided as you, you suggested. The U.S. will not rule out using nuclear weapons in X, Y, or Z conflict. Like, it's just, again, it's not to trivialize, everything isn't media, right? And so it's not to, but it's hard to, it's almost like you have to talk about the media uh, coverage separately from the actual possibility and the actual sort of geopolitical machinations because the media coverage is just so insane. 
Um, let's also uh, move west in Europe. Tens of thousands of people demonstrated in Paris on Sunday to protest the rising cost of living in the country. Uh, the demonstration was planned by a coalition of left-wing parties. It had been in the works for some time, but it also coincides with an ongoing strike by half of the workers at France's oil refineries uh, who have also been calling for a general strike to start as soon as tomorrow. The Times, which reported on, on this, notes that econom economic anxiety is palpable across Europe. There have been large protests in Prague. Uh, Britain is in the middle of its biggest railway strike in 30 years. And there have been walkouts by bus drivers, call center employees, and criminal defense lawyers what? across the continent. Yeah. Um, airline workers in Spain and Germany went on strike recently. They want rate wage increases to reflect the rising cost of living. Um, I was glad to see a protest about the cost of living that was explicitly organized from the left and led by uh, the party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, what do you think this weekend's demonstration should tell people? I think it's significant. Uh, there was a book I recently read called States of Emergency, and he was saying that uh, the 20 teen decade, there was considerable protests. Uh, there was the Yellow Vest movement in France, mm -hmm. and elites were starting to fear a new uh, 1848 when there was an upsurge of revolutionary movements. Uh, and that was the milieu which Karl Marx came out of. Uh, and so, you know, the, the neoliberal and, and uh, existing uh, political economic order was not working for the majority of the population anymore. It was huge inequality, and it was starting to produce a backlash, even in the United States with the, with the Occupy movement, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and then the COVID hit, and that kind of put a damper on the protests. But now we're coming out of the COVID lockdowns, and I think you know, with the energy crisis in Europe and with the <coughs> conflict in <coughs> in Russia and Ukraine, I think the population, you know, uh, the problems that were manifest before COVID are even worse now. And in the grips of this uh, energy crisis, it's just, you know, it's like we're not going to take it anymore. And we're on a potential revolutionary moment now if these movements gain further momentum. And there's a huge gap, you know, a, a democracy deficit between the elites and the population at large. And the elites are involved in all these geopolitical schemes that are actually harming their own population. Uh, and people are starting to wake up and, and rise up. And again, we could be on the precipice of a, of a revolutionary upsurge in Europe and potentially the United States. Although there's always the danger of, of right-wing extremism seizing on the moment and a kind of fascism developing. And that's a danger we see, I think, in the United States. And I think this is why, I mean, it is it is because of this possibility that uh, so much of the, the writing about uh, the, like, the Yellow Vest movement, for example, and others, the, the media is very quick to latch on to any right wing elements of any of these major protest movements to discredit them. Um, and, you know, the Times was really dismissive of who had organized this protest and why. Right. It said um, the, it had been planned by a coalition of left wing parties eager to capitalize on the cost of living crisis and assert itself as a leading opposition force to President Emmanuel Macron. And that the left has seemed eager to use the social unrest to bounce back politically from their own scandals. And it's like, yeah, sure. I'm sure it's sure they want to gain political power. But this is actually I mean, people wanting more of a share of corporate profit is the the reason for being of left-wing mm -hmm. parties you know what i mean and it i feel like it it demonstrates what just how dismissive 
uh, in this case, the New York Times, but a lot of American media reporting is of like legitimate economic grievances that people have and and the left sort of prescription for alleviating them. And, uh, you know, basically saying any left party that's claiming that it wants to, you know, economically benefit its constituents is just, a, you know, they're just cynical. They're just liars. They're just doing this for power. Uh, but let's not ever question how much, for example, Republicans really care about small business owners, you know? Yeah, and I agree with you fully. I mean, I think they're um, failing to, you know, uh, acknowledge the agency of the people that, the governing conditions, you know, uh, have uh, have not worked for those people, and that they have a vision that accords, yeah, with these left wing parties. Who, I mean, any politician to some extent, maybe somewhat of an opportunist, but uh, sure. I mean, the people are actively supporting those, those views of those parties um, because that's what they want and and the people need. So uh, it's not just that they're being manipulated. Yeah, it, it's this kind of almost. Uh, you know, contempt for the masses that they could actually think for themselves and have a vision uh, that accord with these left wing parties. It also, to me, I, I it demonstrates, I think, how far removed the U.S. Democratic Party is from anything the oh, rest yeah. of the world would recognize as the left. And I mm-hmm. feel like evidence of this, there was this Harvard-Harris poll that was making the rounds this weekend showing what America, you know, what people who'd responded to this poll, at least what their top priorities were and also what they perceive our two major parties as prioritizing American, the American public, when they were asked what they were concerned about most, they said price increases and inflation, the economy and jobs and immigration. These are their top three issues. The Republican Party is perceived as prioritizing those issues. Democrats were perceived as caring primarily about January 6th, women's rights, and environment uh, and climate change issues. And I think the point here is not to say that the things Democrats are perceived to care about are unimportant or that Republican priorities are entirely correct because, you know, people, I think a lot of concern about immigration is really sort of whipped up and not discussed, I think, honestly and accurately. Um, But, you know, there is no economically left party that can get any attention in the United States. They exist. They're just ignored. And so Americans are really led to believe that the, the left is solely about what are presented as sort of squishy social issues that only elites can afford to care about. Right. And I think, again, it just goes to show you've really got to stop looking into the Democratic Party to be a left wing party in any sense. You know what I mean? Like that just that just really leapt out to me, Jeremy. Yeah, I think you're right on the mark. And that shift occurred, you know, in the Clinton years or you know, really the Jimmy Carter era uh, where the party embraced large corporations, uh, base, uh, basically embraced a kind of Republican light platform, uh, more conservative economic policy. Uh, even Clinton you know, at one point said, you know, we become Eisenhower Republicans or, you know, Rockefeller Republicans. Uh, and I think, yeah, the, the Democratic Party on the New Deal era promoted a more left-wing platform you know, of higher taxes for the wealthy, uh, regulation of you know corporations, and uh, you know larger uh, social safety net, and, you know pro-union policies. But unions have weakened in the country, and uh, the Democrats, you know, felt uh, uh, they could do better uh, by you know embracing these uh, social issues and adopting more conservative economic policy. And you can look at their funding structure, they get a lot of their money, you know, from large corporations. In fact, a lot of the large corporation, because the Republicans are seem to have gone to the extreme, a lot of the defense contractor and large corporations are putting their money into Democrats 
and that reflects in their platform where they're embracing, you know, the, the Democrats all universally support the war in Ukraine. Uh, they've, you know, Biden endorsed huge military budgets on uh, the NDAA. Uh, so, you know, the party, yeah, on those issues is, is really what the Republican used to be or stand for. And then they try and win voters with these the side issues, uh, which again, yeah, are important, but yeah, it doesn't affect the bottom line for people and people are struggling financially right now mm -hmm. and they're going to be, uh, resentful. And then there are, you know, cultural conservatives in the country who are going to be resentful, uh, anyways. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think it's also, <laughs> also not great if you're stuck, uh, being perceived as caring about issues that I do think are very important, but that you are not doing anything about, you know, Democrats are perceived as being uh, extremely focused on women's issues by which, you know, they mean the right to an abortion. I mean, yeah. What are you what are you going to do? What are you going to do at a national level as a party about it? You control both houses of Congress now and you still haven't done. You can't do anything about it now. You didn't do anything about it when you had the opportunity in the past. And climate change is the same. You know, I feel like for people who are actually very concerned about climate change, I don't think any steps the Democrats have taken are really going to alleviate those concerns. So, you know, they're at once perhaps, I don't think these are niche issues, but there are elements of the population that consider them to be niche issues, but you're not even, you know, standing up and doing very much on these supposed niche, niche issues. Uh, it's, Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I studied like the Obama administration. It had record fracking levels and it purported to be for the environment, but it really, uh, you know, set records as far as supporting fracking, which we know has severe uh, environmental consequences. And I think what you hit on is why so many Americans uh, are alienated from politics and from the two parties, because uh, they would like to see better policies on the environment or to actually support women's rights, but they don't see that from the Democrats. And then they see the Democrats and Republicans both adopting very conservative economic policy that benefit corporations and supporting these wars, uh, endless wars that have no benefit to Americans and, and cause havoc in the world. And you wonder why people uh, are, you know, really alienated and anger, angry. And yeah, it's creating a, a dangerous political uh, climate. Let's also talk about Haiti before we let you go. Uh, over the weekend, as John mentioned earlier, the U.S. and Canada announced that they would send armored personnel carriers to Haiti to help control demonstrations and, uh, according to the Haitian government, to help help them combat the criminal gangs that are disrupting life there. Uh, the U.S. also wrote a draft United Nations Security Council resolution that would allow for a rapid deployment force to go to Haiti. And, I, you know... The U.S., of course, is never not involved in Haiti, right, in a in a covert way. This seems to be, you know, a return to overt involvement in Haiti. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, how, how do you perceive this as as an extension of imperial imperial power? And, uh, you know, the just the, the intervention in Haiti is going to be justified on humanitarian grounds, just like every single intervention Always. in the past has been justified. Yep. And, you know, it, it is hard to tell people to leave a poor country alone. You know what I mean? It, it, like people's heartstrings are pulled at without being told of the history of what exactly these interventions have accomplished. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on the U.S., you know, once again, making overt its uh it's, you know, exercise of power over Haiti and how this is going to be justified. 
Well, yeah, what, what they're not discussing are the hidden motives, uh, the mining interests. You know, recent uh, Haitian governments have opened the country up to foreign mining corporations and granted concessions uh, and opened uh, up to other corporate interests who could establish, you know, low-wage factories in Haiti. So that's they're not going to discuss that. Uh, they're going to, uh, you know, couch their intervention as kind of pious rhetoric of human rights. And yeah, where have we we heard that before? I mean, you can go back to the Brit British Empire, uh, and I mean, yeah, if you look at the the history of Haiti, I mean, Haiti had you know established an independent black republic, throwing off you know French uh, colonial uh, rule in Haiti, and ever since, you know, the United States has has been intervening consistently to try and kind of keep you know Haiti in their place and make sure it, it doesn't thrive as an independent uh, republic and, and American corporations have always been at the forefront and trying to exploit Haiti's economy and, you know, keep it subordinate. So it's just kind of sadly, you know, business as usual, unfortunately, and, and Haiti has had a lot of internal political uh, trouble that they, they've not been able to present a strong front. But, you know, when they had a, a effective leader, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, you know, he was kidnapped and, and removed in the coup. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just going to be it's going to be sad to watch this be justified, uh, you know, using the exactly the same language as past interventions have been justified and probably achieving the, the very same result. It's just it is uh, it is sad how quickly we sort of erase our history behind us so that we can keep doing these kinds of things. That was Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine. Jeremy, thanks, as always, for joining us. Thanks. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk about China and uh, the future of the country and the future of Xi Jinping at its head. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk about the favorite new word, quinquennial <laughs> Communist Party conference underway right now in China, whether China is at an inflection point, And if China is at an inflection point, does that mean the world is at an inflection point right now? Uh, and, uh, you know, what what kind of plans we might expect China to put forth for itself for the next five years. We're also going to talk about a new English language documentary about the Korean War uh, that I think is a lot more forthright about what the U.S. air campaign in Korea, uh, wh what its true nature was, more forthright than a lot of what we see about that war in English language media. Joining us for these conversations is KJ No. KJ is a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. KJ, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be with you. I just want to start off by noting what I think is one of the more bonkers headlines about this party Congress uh, right now. This is a CNN headline. Here's why she's subtle gestures during speech worries people. Okay. So this is just, I, don't, I think maybe I didn't even, it was a video article. I did not watch it. I think it might've been something to do with his health, but like body language journalism is out of control. Um, however, the real news is, 
that the Chinese president did indeed give a speech on Sunday to kick off the week-long Communist Party conference that's held every five years. In that speech, he defended his government's COVID policy. He mentioned economic struggles and said his government remains committed to reform and opening, which NPR at least credits with igniting China's economy over the past few decades. He discussed Taiwan, saying China wants peaceful reunification, but it will not renounce its right to use force. And he mentioned foreign policy, saying a significant shift is taking place in the international balance of power, presenting China with strategic opportunities and pursuing development. And uh, I wonder, these were from NPR, what NPR thinks are the biggest takeaways from Xi uh, Jinping's speech. Uh, KJ, I wonder what you think people should be paying attention to in this speech. I think what people should note is that the continuity of the socialist program uh, that we can see from Mao to Deng Xiaoping to Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, you can see that, you know, Mao was the revolutionary struggle against imperialism um, and feudalism. Deng Xiaoping was, you know, pragmatism, socialist market economy. Jiang Zemin was three represents, which is about inclusivity, creating a big tent rather than having class enemies. Hu Jintao was about scientific development, which is a kind of Singapore model of development using trial spots and scientific approaches to development. And you can see that uh, Xi Jinping's uh, approach or Xi Jinping's thought is a direct continuation of that. And it's an assertion of that continuation of this long process at the same time that it's focusing on uh, more more on equality, that you don't have to have hundreds of years of inequality to uh, develop the productive forces, as, as Deng, uh, Deng Xiaoping thought, uh, and that you can have a balanced and harmonious development. I think it's also striking that he did not mention uh, Russia or Ukraine in person. He did not mention the United States. Uh, directly. Uh, He just mentioned, you know, he made allusions to, you know, the kind of blackmail and containment and uh, the hard times that uh, China might be facing. But I think in general, it's a celebration of accomplishments, which are considerable. Uh, It's uh, a mapping out of guidelines for future development, more, uh, more of the same, in particular, the development of a modern socialist system that is prosperous, strong, democratic, and culturally advanced and harmonious. That's the second, uh, you know, target of the centennial goals. Uh, And then also to brace the country for potential headwinds as the United States continues to escalate against China. She said that the next five years would be crucial for China. And now, you know, on one hand, that very well could be. On the other, you know, in the United States, for example, every election is the most important election of our lifetimes, right? So I'm also aware that that this is also a thing that politicians say. So I wonder, in your opinion, is China really at an inflection point? Uh, or is this rhetoric? And and if it is, what is at stake in the next five years? And I would also like to point out, you know, just, just earlier this month, there was an article in Time magazine uh, that says the world's future is in the hands of Chinese President Xi Jinping, which might be hyperbolic, but as such an important global player, right, and one that is only growing in significance, it would seem to me that if China is indeed If the next five years are crucial for China, the next five years are going to be crucial for the rest of the world. So what do you think? 
I think it's very important. I mean, first, I think it's an allusion to the fact that they've hit the first of their uh, centennial goals, moderate, a moderately prosperous society in 2021 with the end of uh, extreme poverty. Now, as I said, you know, they want to build a modern socialist country on their terms, not on Western terms, not by aping or imitating a Western model of development, but but following a Chinese model of development. And then it's also an allusion to the fact that there are global changes happening, that, as the Chinese say, changes unseen uh, in a century. Uh, that is to say, the shift between unipolarity, U.S. global hegemony, towards multipolarity as being as as instantiated by the SCO, the uh, the BRI, uh, and other uh, um, you know Asia-centric uh, development projects. I think that is what they're talking about when they say that you know this is one of the most important times <laughs> of our lifetimes the possibility of a global South uh, having choices and development rather than the forced Washington consensus neoliberalism that has been rammed down its throats and has prevented every country that was colonized from developing except for uh, four or five, of which China is one. What kind of plans do you expect to see out of this party Congress to further this project of, of now building a modern socialist state? I think the the emphasis will be more on uh, equality or equity. You know, once again, uh, the idea uh, under Deng Xiaoping was to develop the productive forces. This would be a hundred-year project, but it would create differential in wealth. Uh, Xi Jinping in 2013 said to the party cadres that we do not have to do this, you know, that we have to be careful that there are forces allied against us that want to take China down that want to dismember it, you know, in the way that they dismembered the Soviet Union, uh, and so that it has to be careful about this kind of external containment blockade and extreme pressure. But also the other piece uh, is that, as Xi Jinping said, that it's possible uh, for us to develop uh, and to not, you know, be attached to this gradualism and this indefinite uh, developmental imperfection and class inequality. He believed that you can have uh, balanced and sustainable development. And you see that in the shift back towards uh, socialist distribution, the kind of curbing of the capitalist class, uh, as well as the emphasis on sustainable development, green development, and the massive uh, changes in uh, you know, purging corruption Uh, and cleaning up the environment. I also want to ask, you know, what is the justification for naming (laughs) Xi Jinping to what is consistently called an unprecedented third term in office, which, of course, has not happened yet, but is expected, right? If anything else comes out of this Congress, I think that would be enormous news. Um, As as I understand it, two terms is traditional and extending his uh, his term in power, of course, gives the world an opportunity to call Xi a dictator. Uh, So what, what is the justification? Well, I think, uh, you know, I would, I would reframe the question because mm-hmm. at least 49 world leaders that have served longer 
than 10 years, and many of them are in quote-unquote Western democratic states. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. Singapore, Germany. I mean, Merkel was in there for 14 years, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, Netanyahu, 13 years. Switzerland, the Czech Republic. So it's not uncommon for countries to have uh, rulers to, you know, to be in power for a long time. And I think this is tied in China's situation with performance legitimacy. That is to say, the party has delivered and the leader of the party has delivered. And therefore, you know, we look at the work report, we grade it, we analyze it, and then we decide that we continue on the path that we have been doing based on the performance uh, that the, you know, that the leader uh, has 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 steered us into. Mm-hmm. I think it's also an understanding that this is a delicate period in world affairs. Uh, it's a situation of heightened Western and U.S. belligerence uh, and containment against China. And I think changing directions or creating instability in the leadership structure is also a problem. And the last thing I'll point out is that, you know, China has had five leaders and only one of them, Jiang Zemin, has uh, served, uh, you know, only 10 years. Every single one of them, Mao, Deng, uh, Hu Jintao, uh, and possibly now Xi Jinping, uh, will serve over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Not something which is extraordinary. But the U.S. uses the term dictator anytime there is a leader which is not subordinate to U.S. or Western design. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing I want to talk to you about is, of course, very much related to propaganda, and that is this new documentary called Scorched Earth that aims to capture the reality of the American air war on North Korea. And you called it extraordinary, and I wanted to ask you to tell our listeners what it shows and talk about how rare a movie like this is in English media. Well, I think it's it's rare because it's already being banned. I know this of, of YouTube. And so that's how, you know, how, you know, for Bolton it is. But it shows the reality of the U.S. air war on North Korea, where, you know, close to, uh, we think at least one-fifth of uh, Koreans were killed, mostly civilians. Uh, At least three million were killed. Uh, And it's this constant carpet bombing, this extraordinary uh, violence against uh, anything and everything uh, that moved. And this was a precursor to the Vietnam War with its free fire zones and the massive carpet bombing. But you can see all of that being prefigured in the Korean War. And what's extraordinary about it is it uses rare archival footage uh, from the United States. It has overdubs uh, of U.S. Uh, pilots talking about uh, shooting up uh, civilians. It's it's like two hours of, you know, the WikiLeaks collateral murder video uh, and, you know, multiplied by uh, 100,000 times. Yeah. I think that's what makes it extraordinary. And that's why I think it will not be shown anywhere in the United States. I don't think it will do well in the festival circuit. I think, you know, just like the pilots who threw up after these massive bombings that they were perpetrating, I think the U.S. audience will throw up. I do not think they will be able to show this in the United States, which is why I urge people to seek it out and try and see it anyway. Mm -hmm. The movie got a a very positive review in the Asia Times, um, but it was interesting to me that even in talking about this and sort of talking about how the the reality of the air war, uh, the U.S. air war on North Korea isn't discussed, uh, there's still 
There's still shells to crack through, right? This is a line from that review. While the war remains cloaked in propaganda in North Korea, many of its harshest realities were also cloaked in the South, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, okay, so the war in in North Korea, the war is cloaked in propaganda, but the United States is never doing propaganda. Instead, later in this uh, review, the United States is described as presenting narratives that are entrenched in patriotism. Which is like, surely that's the same thing, right? And so I wanted to ask you about, you know, it feels like to me the the Korean War was a really high high watermark for propaganda, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. Yes, this is uh, it's very very important, and also a kind of a hidden history. You know, the whole notion of uh, brainwashing itself uh, was invented mm-hmm. in the Korean War by the journalist Edward Hunter. And this was because there were American prisoners of wars who were cooperating with their Chinese captors, sometimes defected, and they often denounced uh, U.S. Uh, policy in uh, in Korea against uh, the North Koreans. And so this was one of the propaganda memes that was created that, you know, somehow there was some extraordinary, you know, uh, persuasion and mental violence indoctrination that was being perpetrated. And this created this kind of black hole under which anything that was spoken, any truth that was spoken about U.S. atrocities in, uh, in during the Korean War was kind of swept to the side. And you see more of this kind of silencing and complete and total, uh, you know, information black hole that was created during that period. I think we still live with that legacy. I mean, even when we're we're talking about the Abu Ghraib, uh, you know, torture scandal, this was blamed uh, indirectly on the North Koreans when we know that the U.S. and the CIA has a long history of indigenous torture going all the way back to the Inquisition. Do you see any uh, parallels with what happened during the Korean War at the UN and what's going on now with regard to Haiti? Because it seems like, I mean, it's not a one-to-one, obviously, but it does seem like, once again, you have the UN kind of providing a fig leaf for the United States to pursue its own imperial ambitions in Haiti, right, with this whole, like, a police police action language. Do, do you see any useful parallels there? Um, I think a little bit, but, you know, I, I think it, it's largely different because the U.N. was at a very incipient stage and the U.S. Star boycotted the Security Council, which was why mm-hmm. that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, measure was able to be passed. I think it's a very different uh, situation right now. But the key fact we have to remember is the U.N. in Haiti has always been uh, catastrophic and suspect, and the UN should not get involved. You know, there is a mechanism that is set up through the Montana Accords for a transitional government oversight elections and truth and justice, and the world and the UN should support these accords rather than trying to get involved once again to the massive suffering and detriment of the Haitians. That was KJ. No, KJ, thank you so much. Really appreciate your commentary. And I should point out also, KJ, in addition to being a journalist and a scholar, is a member of Veterans for Peace. So I don't know, somehow that seems relevant when we are talking about the the justification or lack thereof for military intervention. So, KJ, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. We are going to take a break here in just a second and come back to talk about protests in Iran. We're going to talk about every day we could talk about political chaos in the UK. Oh, yeah. John, we're going to get into that. 
we are going to talk about, hey, something that we were on early, which is the possibility that it's not just Europe that is going to be potentially very chilly this winter. That's right. But New England. New England as New well. New England governors, were they wrote a letter to the Biden administration, what, three weeks ago? Mm-hmm. A month ago saying, hey, we want to make sure in all your efforts to send liquid natural gas to, to Europe to try to make up for their energy losses there that we mm-hmm. don't get left out. Looks like they are already preparing for the possibility of uh, rolling brownouts. So yes, we are going to ask our guest about that. Uh, we also have the end of the Igor Danchenko trial, which is sort of, uh, I've been calling it the Russiagate finale. Yes. Uh, I mean, let's hope, right? Crossing my fingers here uh, that this is the end of it. it. I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I feel like, yeah, this guy clearly, clearly was lying to the FBI. Mm-hmm. Except it kind of seems like uh, that's allowable if you do it for the correct political reasons. Right. Which doesn't seem to be a very replicable way to run a justice system. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But we'll see. I I think that the jury deliberations are going to start today, this morning. And I guess the assumption is that they won't last very long. No. It's kind of an easy case. And it's a minor crime, a process crime. I mean, the Justice Department says this is a very grave crime. No, it's not. Lying to the FBI. The, for a first offense, uh, the, the federal sentencing guidelines call for zero to six months. Remarkable, though, how so much of this has been about these process crimes. And so these crimes that you're describing as relatively minor, what they, uh, what they resulted in was, you know, um, maybe permanent fracturing of trust in U.S. media Absolutely and government. Right. I mean, terrifying. That's right. So that's what we're getting into in just a sec. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Over the past several weeks, the media have reported extensively on unrest in Iran. This began with the killing in police custody of Mahsa Amini, a young woman who was arrested for having her hair uncovered. There were demonstrations in Tehran immediately after her death, and then those demonstrations spread throughout the country. On Friday, riots broke out at the notorious, excuse me, I'm tongue-tied, the notorious Evan Prison, where political prisoners are kept and have been kept since the 60s. There were at least eight dead and dozens injured there, and it appears that the violence is ongoing. Last week, members of the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, moved to disrupt demonstrations that had broken out in the Iranian oil industry and farther south and east in the region of Baluchistan. On Friday, riots um, continued, not just in Baluchistan, but in uh, Kurdistan. And there's been no comment uh, about the spreading of the riots in the Iranian media. The New York Times reported that the IRGC is ready and willing to use whatever force is necessary to preserve the, regi- the regime. Of course they would. They're, they're int- intricately tied into the regime, uh, especially economically. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister Liz Truss is in even bigger trouble than she was a week ago. She's in so much trouble that one British newspaper has started a meme asking what will last longer, Liz Truss as prime minister or this head of cabbage. 
and so far the head of cabbage is winning. In other news, Tunisia has reached a preliminary agreement with the IMF and the World Bank on a $1.9 billion loan designed to help alleviate the North African economy plagued by food and fuel shortages. The deal, which was announced late on Saturday and is yet to be ratified by the IMF board, is expected to open the door to loans from other donors awaiting the reassurance that the heavily indebted country would commit to reforms, which form part of the package. Before the agreement, some analysts were predicting that Tunisia would not be able to meet its debt repayments and would likely default. This will be the third agreement between Tunisia and the IMF since 2013, and diplomats have warned in recent months that the country has failed to implement previously agreed reforms. These include reducing subsidies, privatizing state-owned enterprises, and cutting civil service wages, which is seen as one of the highest in the world relative to the size of the economy. And finally, as Michelle mentioned a moment ago, the trial of Igor Danchenko ends today with closing arguments this afternoon. We're joined by author and journalist Dan Lazar. Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Iran, Dan. Michelle mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show that a lot of what we we uh, see here in the in the West, a lot of the news that we consume about Iran may or may not be true, uh, may or may not be biased. It's hard to get a true account of, of what's happening there. But it seems that these protests that began with the death of Mahsamini have indeed spread around the country, even if the protests are for different reasons. For example, there was rioting over the weekend among the Baluchis I mentioned a, a moment ago. They're protesting their own treatment at the hands of the Iranian government. Some Iran observers are saying that these protests could be enough to threaten the regime. Others say that this is like the Green Movement in 2009 and that it's all going to come to nothing. What do you think? Well, I, first of all, I think, that the, um, I think that it's not quite correct to say they um, uh, – sorry. I think it's not, not quite correct to say the Baluchis are, are protesting for different reasons. I mean uh, I think everybody is fed up with the regime. Everybody is fed up with the corruption, the economic disparities uh, – the um, the repressive cultural policies, the brutal police tactics. Uh, I mean, everybody's very angry, uh, and you even see the demonstrations are even even drawing the drawing young women who take off their hijabs in defiance of the of the morality police. But they draw they're drawing older women who have worn the hijab all their lives, intend to keep on wearing it. But just this, this intensely dislike the heavy-handed approach mm-hmm. of the authorities. Yes. So everyone is really fed up. I mean, the the, the Masa Amini uh, case was a um, was a the, the the straw that broke the camel's back, and people are angry. They're in the streets. Uh, they're furious. As to where this ends, the difference with, uh, between this, these demonstrations and those in 2009 was the earlier ones were led by a wing of the ruling, the ruling class, the ruling political elite, Good the reformist wing. Uh, this is not. This is completely independent. Uh, it reflects the – for good or for ill, it reflects the, 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 the free-form anger of ordinary people. Uh, who are not part of any of the, the the ruling political circles. So 
this is it's good in a way that it shows you know it's it's more radical it's uh it's more ambitious uh it's bad because it's um it's less organized uh it's inchoate uh there's no indication of any kind of political program for change behind the protests so it's a mixed bag but certainly i think it goes deeper it's angrier it's more radical than we saw before I want to ask you about what in the world is going on in London. We've been following this Liz Truss situation closely. She fired her chancellor of the Exchequer last week after he implemented to the letter her economic recovery plan. (laughs) She fired him on the spot. Now her new chancellor has done a complete 180 and has done the opposite of what Truss said she would do if she became prime minister. The UK doesn't have to have national elections again until January of 2025. But the sharks are already circling Liz Truss. Do oh, you yeah. think she can survive this? No, I think I think she has literally hours left. <laughs> the head of I cabbage mean, she wins. Failed, <laughs> she she failed to show up for a for a PMQ a, par, a prime minister question oh, time. Oh, you're kidding me! Uh, and uh, yeah, I missed so that. She, she, she almost seems to be in hiding. I mean, that's an exaggeration. I'm, I'm getting carried away here. But she, she, she definitely is lying low. I think it's. I think Jeremy Hunt, the yes. new chancellor of the Exchequer, has virtually taken over the reins of government. Well, that's what uh, the British and, papers said today. That look, yeah. for all intents and purposes, Jeremy Hunt is the new prime minister, and right. it may not be official now, but it might be official two weeks from now. Did, did I mention that I actually I actually met Quasi Quartang no. about a decade ago <laughs> at a he? wedding? At a wedding? <laughs> at a wedding where he was best man, actually. Wow, and, uh, that and is I, funny. I, I chatted with him briefly about, of all things, uh, the Federalist Papers. Huh, uh, really? Quasi turns out to be an enthusiast as well, although he was an, an, an uncritical admirer. Uh, so we chatted for a few minutes, and he. Uh, uh, and I thought he was not very impressive. In fact, I might even use the wow. word twit. But uh, <laughs> but I thought he was a, a a financial guy with intellectual pretensions. I had no idea that he was involved in conservative party politics in this way. And he's what the the shortest the shortest lived chancellor on record, except for one guy right. who died. Of a heart attack after thirty days. That's so, right. <laughs> yes, so, he made so, it one uh, more week. So, Right. So I, I have the rare honor of meeting the second shortest lived <laughs> chancellor of the exchequer. So. You know, I was surprised, frankly, when she fired him um, and he had only been in, in office for five weeks on his way out. He said, oh, she's wonderful. Her policies are wonderful. She didn't want to do this. She was forced to do it. I support her fully. And then he Who's- took his seat in the back bench. It's like, why would you even come out and say something like that? Also, well, who would have forced her, her to do it except for him? Exactly. Yeah. She she's on her way out at way out also. I mean, it's it's clear she 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 fired him because she had no other choice. Uh the, the policies were hopelessly discredited. She she and and Kamikwazi, as they call him, had jointly prepared <laughs> that mini budget. Uh so the and any attempt to, to slough off uh, blame onto him was obviously not gonna work. So I mean she's just uh she's a walking dead man. Yeah, it it seems to me that that's the case as well. 
Should have listened to the sick of it line, you know, <laughs> fire them after, you know, fire them after 12 weeks. You look like you made a mistake. Fire them after 12 months. It looks like they messed up. You That's know? right. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're seeing reports that New England may experience brownouts this winter because of a lack of natural gas needed to heat houses. The British press is reporting the same thing. There just may not be enough gas and heating oil to heat the UK through the winter. If this happens, do you think there will be a discernible political fallout either here or in the UK? Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> it'll be a it'll be um it'll be a typhoon. I yeah. mean, the uh, people are people are, are completely upset, completely fed up with the uh, the economic mismanagement. Uh, I think the uh, I, I I hate to go out on a limb here, but I think that uh, that if the Democrats lose in in three weeks, this will be the reason why. Uh, uh, I mean, people are really upset. They're really frightened as to where this is all going. It's only getting worse. Yeah. It I, mean, is. They, I mean, inflation is surging and therefore the Fed is, is, is clearly surging in response. Um, one of our uh, listeners posted a, a short comment. Brits are very polite, John, I, which reminds me of something that I saw when I first moved to the UK, 1985, happiest year of my life. Was uh, it, sorry, uh, let me guess. Was it people vomiting in the gutter at 9.15? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, it was, it was way, way better than that. Something so mean. There was a guy parked on the road, and he was pulling out just as another car was coming. And so they both screeched to a halt, and they both got out of the car. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to see a fight. And one of them shouts, why don't you look before you leap, mate? And the other one says, Sorry, mate. And they wave at each other and get back in their cars and drive away. I was like, my God, this is the friendliest country in the world. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree with John. John. It's a very, it's a very, they're very nice people. They really are very likable people. I I think it's, I'm, I'm impressed in the same way. Getting back to this um, heating oil thing. You know, this is a serious problem. Um, New England traditionally has gotten its winter fuel from Libya and Algeria. And the Libyans are in disarray. The Algerians just can't produce any more than they're already producing. My sister lives in, in Bedford, New Hampshire. It's flipping cold there in the wintertime. But they have this, um, they have this uh, thing where they, they dump wood pellets into, the, into some receptacle and, and it just keeps the house heated all the time. It's fantastic. But they're fortunate in that they can afford to have a system like this. Many people in New England can't, and they're reliant on home heating oil. Um, and I'm wondering, what's Joe, Bride, what's Joe Biden going to do about it if people just simply can't heat their houses this winter? You know, there used to be this program, and I know that Gaddafi did it just to sort of screw Reagan and, and whoever came after Reagan. Um, but he would send uh, free heating oil to which which RFK son was it that ran the charity up there? One one of Robert Kennedy's sons mm-hmm. ran this charity up there to provide discounted heating uh, oil in the wintertime to poor people, mm-hmm. and the the poorest of the poor could get through the winter that way. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. And so, w- what do people do? Is there a plan that Joe Biden has? To, to help poor people in New England get through the winter? Well, I, I, I'm, sure there, I'm sure there was a plan somewhere. But um, 
I, I'm unsure of how effective it, it will be, but I'm, I am confident that, that Biden will reap more blame than credit. Yeah. I mean, people are just very angry and they're, and they're blaming him. And I, you know, it, it's not entirely fair because the economy was, 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 uh, showing signs of trouble, you know, before he took office, uh, but um, but he clearly has made things worse by overstimulating the economy and also by, you know, sparking a war, yeah. which has sent a uh, sent inflation shooting through the roof. So, um, you know, so uh, he's he's taking it on the chin really badly. And I think he's going to pay a, a huge price. Yeah. Tunisia came to this agreement again with uh, the World Bank and the IMF that is going to force it to end public subsidies and to privatize some of its publicly held companies. This is the third time since 2013 they've come to this kind of an agreement, but it's failed so far. Uh, There are more than four dozen other countries that are currently negotiating for relief from the World Bank and the IMF. But these banks' track records are not at all good. These agreements usually cause human misery and economic failure. I mean, look what happened in Yemen. How many agreements did Yemen have with the IMF and the World Bank? What do you think the future holds for Tunisia and these other similar countries or countries that are in similar predicaments? Many of them are on the brink of social unrest already. Do you think that that's something that we should uh, we should expect to see in the near future? I think the I think the pressures are intensifying. I mean, every every week seems to bring a report of a new country that's you know just just top, you know hurtling over the precipice. You know, one week it's uh, it's it's Sri Lanka. Next next week it's uh, it's Lebanon. Uh, there are dozens of countries in severe distress uh, due to inflation and also due to the appreciation of the U.S. dollar. Because uh, most most commodities are priced in dollars, so when the um, U.S. dollar goes up. Uh, um, the the prices, the effective prices they have to pay are go up as well. So therefore, they're kind of getting a double blow uh, due to inflation and dollar appreciation. So, um, I mean, you know, so so energy prices are doubling, not merely increasing ten or fifteen percent, but doubling, and uh, and the the impact is is devastating for the poor. Uh, you know, they, who can't afford, you know can't afford cooking oil, can't afford, you know, to, to, to heat their homes. Uh, energy, of course, you know, figures into a whole range of commodities, all of which are under huge upward pressure. So these countries are facing very angry populaces. They're facing uh, 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 political fragility, and they're in big trouble. And, and so, yeah, so Tunisia will wind up borrowing from the IMF, which means it'll get, you know, it'll get even deeper into the hole mm-hmm. and will exactly. be all the more unlikely to pay those debts back. So, so they're kind of selling themselves into debt bondage in order to get out of this, you know, in, in order to buy a little time. There you go. We asked one of our guests earlier today about the current situation in Haiti. I wanted to get your take on it as well. The U.S. and Canada are sending these armored personnel carriers to Haiti. Um, presumably for some sort of police action. Uh, Over the weekend, the U.S. drew up a draft U.N. Security Council resolution that would allow, if it's passed, it would allow the deployment of a rapid security force to Haiti. Are these actions supposed to prepare the American people for U.S. military intervention there? What national interests do we have in Haiti anyway? 
Well, the natural natural interest that America has in Haiti is that it has it has served to screw it up. Yeah, for countless times <laughs> for literally centuries on end. I mean, going back to the uh, to the the Jefferson administration, where Jefferson broke relations with Haiti uh, because they were a bunch of rebellious slaves, uh, and uh, and essentially, you know, uh, uh, helped uh, plunge Haiti into international isolation. Uh, it was only Lincoln who restored uh, diplomatic relations, by the way, um, and you know, and the and the U.S. invaded and occupied Haiti uh, beginning in uh, in uh, 1912, I think it was. Um, and and the and the 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 military aid that is now now flowing to Haiti in defense of uh, President uh, Ariel Henry Henri uh, Henri was implicated in the death of uh, his predecessor right. Jovenel uh, Moise. That's right. Um, so uh, so you know so this is a this is a level of corruption and breakdown which is just. Unbelievable, but you know what really is uh, what I think is really the issue here that no one no one comments upon. I mean, uh, Haitian agriculture has collapsed. Now, that's a terrible thing, but it's kind of understandable given that you know small farmers the world over are suffering, and Haiti really can't compete with international agribusiness. But the problem is that the Haitian people have no escape. They're locked yeah, in it. place. Yes. So can you imagine if like if during the Dust Bowl nineteen thirties, all those 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 Okies and Kansans had been blocked at the border? Yes. And had been kept in place for decades on end while their state economies collapsed. And you know, and, and there were federal troops lining the border, shooting them if they if they yeah. tried to cro- to cross. I mean, of course, things would have gone from bad to worse. Uh, and we kind of see the same thing in Haiti. These people, you know, there's there's no, you know, local, the local economy has collapsed. It's been re- replaced by a drug economy, which is, you know, which which leads to gangsterism on a fantastic scale, violence, breakdown, et cetera. Uh, but the people can't escape. Yes. So, you know, so under under neoliberalism, we saw that we've we've seen the, you know, the free international flows of commodities and investment coupled with increasing restrictions on 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 human, you know, labor transport, human flows. You know, people are locked in place so, so they can't follow the jobs. Right. They can't follow the economic economic opportunities. So, you know, so all they can do is stay home and join gangs and then riot and then, you know, topple the government and things just get worse and worse and worse. And, and all the U.S. can do is send in armored vehicles to shoot them down. I mean, it's a it's a complete spiral downward that this is uh, is it's 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 hideous. The Igor Danchenko trial ends this afternoon. Um, and while we don't have a verdict yet, of course, I wanted to ask about the FBI's and the Justice Department's priorities here. Danchenko was an FBI darling. The FBI paid him a lot of money. They actually sought to pay him even more money. And the FBI's headquarters said, no, 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 you've already paid him enough money. Um, now he's on trial on what really is a process charge, a charge of lying to the FBI, making a false statement. It seems to me that it's the FBI that should be in the dock for not doing its job and vetting Danchenko's information. They should have known early on that the guy was a liar. This trial has gotten a lot of coverage, but in the greater scheme of things, is it 
all really that important? What's the lesson to be learned here? Well, I, I agree. This, I mean, I mean, the, the trial itself is kind of perplexing. I mean, I mean, uh, first of all, um, Danchenko is accused about about li- of lying about certain things. So the FBI says says in other in other instances, he was actually an excellent excellent human intelligence mm-hmm. source. Mm-hmm. Human, exactly. Human, well, that's how yeah. you do it. Right. That's how you get people to believe that you're lying by <laughs> not lying 100 percent right. of the time. Yep. Right. And um, and and and, I, and he says that Christopher Steele completely exaggerated whatever tips that that he Dan, uh, Danchenko sent along. Uh, so I so that the, the trial looks like the, the the trial will go in Danchenko's favor that he'll be acquitted. We don't really know. But meanwhile, the the FBI's behavior throughout this entire episode still stands out as just one of the most bizarre crazy cases of a federal agency going totally haywire and with incredible consequences. I mean, the, 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 the FBI had information that the Steele dossier was untrue by the fall of, um, of, uh, of 2016. Yeah. Yet, right. yet, yet, yet Jim Comey, the head of the FBI confronted Trump in January, 2017 with the famous, you know, uh, uh, um, golden showers uh, episode. Uh, you know why did he do that? Good what, question. What was he hoping to hear? You know what was his goal? And they kept this thing going, even though they they knew it was untrue. They they used the Steele dossier to renew their uh, their 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 subpoena of um of uh, Carter Page mm-hmm. three more mm-hmm. times, even though they knew the information was false. They, they used the information to pressure, to, 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 to put pressure on Congress, on, on the Trump administration to appoint a special prosecutor who then dragged things out for another year and a half. I mean, so, so essentially, you know, essentially the FBI caused this fantastic ruckus that completely consumed American politics mm-hmm. for something like three years, three and a half years, it's, on the basis of information that either they knew was false or they should have known was false. Yeah, can I? So, it, yeah. Sorry, sorry I just uh, the timeline. It was the. This has gone on for so long that it can be hard to re- remember the timeline, right? And remember just how early the Steele dossier mm-hmm. was and what was the order of events. But so Danchenko is a source for much of the Steele dossier, right? Danchenko uh, uh, laundering, you know, t- TV reports and and conversations with this American PR executive, whatever, for the Steele dossier. Danchenko is a becomes an FBI paid informant in 2017, right? And he's a paid FBI informant from 2017 to 2020. Mm-hmm. Surely part of this was the FBI asking Danchenko if they could corroborate mm-hmm. information from the Steele dossier, dossier, which is, you know, maybe information that he has given Steele himself. So again, right. like, should the FBI not have at some point become aware before, at some point before, again, like 2022, become aware that maybe the guy who was doing the checking for them was all, you know what I mean? Like right. how was, how was oh, yeah, no yeah. one aware of this? CIA wasn't aware that this could possibly be the case either. I mean, it just, it, it does start to really make it seem like this is either, either absolute incompetence or it's sort of d- a deliberate looking the other way, like de- deliberately uh, coasting on really dodgy information. 
I, I think I think it's I think it's either gross uh, incompetence and malfeasance as well as the uh, as the DOJ uh, special uh, investigator Michael Hoff, uh, Michael Horowitz uh, determined. He found there were seventeen various rule violations and errors in the and the, and the Carter Steele uh, um, uh, applications to the uh, to the special court. Um, but uh, it, it, either it was gross incompetence and malfeasance, or it was an attempt to uh, to drive a president out of office because Comey and other top officials of the deep state, dare I use that term, uh, were convinced that he was some kind of Russian agent. And they and they uh, and even though they had no firm evidence, they suspected as much and therefore they wanted to keep the heat on in the hope that he would break. I think that is the simplest and most logical explanation uh, as to what the FBI was up to. My only question would be, do you think they really thought Trump was actually an, an a, a Russian agent of some sort, or is it just yes. about Donald Trump not becoming president? Because I I would buy that you know they went to extremes to try to at least thwart Trump's uh, ambitions right as president. But it's just hard for me to believe that anyone could really think that Donald Trump was a reliable agent for anyone at all. That's because you're a rational person. Yeah, thank I mean, I you, think that, I think that, I think, <laughs> I, th- I, I think in the in the in the in the Washington bubble. There was this this intense paranoia about Russia, about Russia, this intense, this 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 intense conspiracy mongering where they really had gotten into their heads that 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 uh, that that uh, Vladimir Putin is this kind of demonic figure who, you know, who could pull strings in the Kremlin and horrible things would happen all around the world. He was the cause of everything that was going wrong. He was going to sow discord in the United States and that somehow uh, Trump was his instrument and that therefore they were going into a, you know, into a, into a kind of a, a, they saw a security, they believed they had a security emergency on their hands and they were essentially kind of plotting together. I don't want to sound too conspiratorialist myself, but somehow they were convinced that he was somehow tied up with the Kremlin. His feet had to be held to the fire and everything that Donald Trump did seemed to confirm these suspicions among top Democrats. But listen, listen, Hillary Clinton. I mean, I mean, Hillary Clinton thought that Tulsi Gabbard was a was a Russian agent. Right. In fact, she called her a paid agent. Yeah. Which which has a very specific meaning in the intelligence community. Yeah. yeah. And, and didn't didn't Susan Rice speculate that Russia was the cause of the uh of the um, Black Lives Matter disturbances. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I That's mean it's it, it's amazing, but this is this is their mindset. So given that mindset, uh, uh and which which pervaded the the top layers of the federal government, given that that mindset, it seems that there was an attempt to drive Trump out of office. I think that is the the careful conservative, you know, conclusion that one might draw from yeah. this this whole pattern of events. We will leave it there. That was the voice of Dan Lazar. He is an author and journalist. Thanks for joining us, Dan. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest, so stay tuned.
back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. Last week saw a spate of reports of serious police misconduct around the country. Just yesterday, the town of Springfield, Massachusetts, paid $150,000 to settle a case in which a police officer slammed a 12-year-old girl to the floor of her school. Madison, Wisconsin police paid a $1.1 million settlement to a man who was 17 and was having a mental health crisis when a police officer tackled him and repeatedly punched him in the face. The video is graphic. And Syracuse, New York police paid a $150,000 settlement to a young man who had three ribs broken in an altercation with police. A video also made the rounds on Twitter. Last week of a father being arrested for filming his son's interaction with police, even though the father was standing lawfully and peaceably on the sidewalk, he was charged with blocking traffic. He was tackled and arrested. All charges were dropped and the police department paid the two men a six figure settlement. We're joined by Paul Wright. He's executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome, Paul. I got it all out without coughing up a lung. On the other show, John. Always glad to have you, Paul. Uh, and you know what? It's been a couple of months. Yeah, it's been a little so while. So we, we've missed you. Yeah. Yeah, it has. And it's not, it's, not like the, it's not like the police state has taken a break and the abuse and <laughs> the misconduct and the corruption has stopped or taken a break. It right. And then here we are again. So let me, let me begin with the most obvious question. Have the police learned nothing from George Floyd? Have they learned nothing from federal oversight? Why are we still seeing so many reports of police brutality? Because <laughs> this is how the government runs. I mean, George Floyd really was the only thing that was unusual about George Floyd was that the video of his being murdered and strangled for nine minutes was caught on video and made the rounds. And I would say that uh, more likely than not, if there hadn't been a video, Derek Chauvin would probably still be brutalizing and killing people yeah. um, on the force. I mean, I, and, I, and I think that's one of the things is that a lot of these incidents, um, the brutality, the underlying crimes and the brutality are the day-to-day norm that is the norm. What's unusual or an aberration is that something happens in terms of um, cops even getting disciplined, much less convicted, and the fact that there's successful litigation or anything like that, that's the aberrational part about it or the exceptional part about it. it as far as the brutality itself and, and everything else that goes with it, I'd say that's the norm. And, you know, and I think the fact that um, people I don't think really appreciate in this country, you know, the level of policing that, um, you know, that we have, especially when, uh, one of the things I notice, uh, when we don't have a pandemic, I travel a lot. I go all over the country for, you know, other conferences or speaking engagements or litigation or whatever. One of the things I also notice is like, how many cops are there? <laughs> and, yeah, you know, and it's funny because like you go to some of these places in like rural America, and these places aren't that big. It's like, wow, they sure got a lot of cops here because like it seems like they're everywhere, especially when you're in relatively small places. And and that's one of the things I think that most people don't realize is the fact that the United States has at least sixteen thousand police and law enforcement agencies to have arrest powers, and with arrest powers goes killing power. Yeah, and that's a lot. That's a lot of. Um, people with guns and not much in the way of oversight. And 
So why are we surprised that, and if anything, I'd say the news is underreporting the brutality because the only time this stuff is making the news is when there's a video yes. or there's some type of thing that, you know, kind of can get past the mainstream media where the mainstream media is no longer the gatekeepers of news and information and, you know, or something else is happening. Like, you know, there's a lawsuit, but you know, there's a lawsuit or there's some type of government inquiry or something like that. But when you think about places like, you know, New York, for example, where over 8,000 complaints, civilian or citizen complaints of misconduct or abuse are filed every year, and only, you know, a couple dozen of them are found by the internal police investigation to be meritorious. So is everyone else lying? You know, probably not. But again, that doesn't make the news. The city of Chicago last week set up what it's calling a a mediation board that would handle complaints of police brutality. This seems to me to be a setback or a step backward, maybe. If a police officer brutalizes a citizen, that police officer should be prosecuted or at least disciplined. What good would mediation do? So please tell me these mediators are not the wave of the future. Do you see this happening anywhere else? I don't know that it is, just, and that's in part just because the police are so vehemently opposed over any type of oversight, yes. how nominal. And, and I think one of the realities is is the fact that, you know, I've been, I'm on different listservs and discussion boards about police and prison abuse and misconduct, and periodically someone will post, one of the lawyers on these, uh, on these groups will post the inquiry, I'm looking for a civilian oversight board of police that works well. Does anyone... Uh. And it's pretty much a deafening silence. You know, no one is coming up and saying, hey, no, we have this in this city and it works great. And and I think it's kind of an interesting kind of reality is that in the United States, effectively, there really isn't any type of effective civilian oversight of the police. And any attempts that they, we've had in like the last 40 years have pretty much quickly been co-opted um, or rendered toothless. Either they were toothless to begin with, which is more likely than not is the reality. Um, either they were toothless to begin with, or um, you know, or they um, quickly devolved into toothlessness um, and, and, and ineffectiveness. And it seems like you know the it, it's kind of an interesting situation because you know we have a situation where, in theory, there's a separation of powers. There's supposed to be oversight and checks and balances, but when it comes to the police, there really isn't any. No, and and you know and. And um, especially like when you, when you start looking at things at the local and the county level, for example, where um, the police agencies consume the biggest portion of the budget. Most cities around the country, um, believe, between the police, the jail, and the court system at the county level, that usually accounts for around 70 to 80 percent of the local county budget. So most of every dollar, or one way to think about it is, you know, Every 70 or 80 cents of every dollar collected by that jurisdiction is going into cops, courts, and jails. And mm-hmm. people need to be asking, what am I getting for it? But beyond what are they getting for, it's like, you know, where's the oversight? And the reality is there really isn't any. Exactly what I feared. There is no other Western country that has a problem with police violence like the United States. Statistically, no other country even comes close. Why is this the case, do you think? Um, why can't we turn it around? Or is the culture of police violence so ingrained in our society now that it's just too late to change? I think with, 
with political will, anything is possible. And I think that part of the thing is that, you know, we haven't really... It's interesting, because if you look at American history in the past hundred years, almost every incident of um, urban unrest, of riots, whether it's Rodney King's riots, the uh, the Watts riots in 1964, which that was a year before I was born, they all get traced back to police abuse and police misconduct. So it's not like, you know, we're sitting here on this show today in 2020 and 2022 and discovering that, hey, police abuse and uh, and misconduct by police is suddenly an issue. It's like, no, we know it's been an issue for, you know, going back at least 60 years and probably longer. And I think the fact that no one addresses it and no one in a position of power addresses it, is, I think, where they view it as no one in the government thinks this is a problem. They're perfectly fine with the police brutalizing people, killing them with impunity. And pretty much, I mean, here's some of the stuff that's interesting. The United States is one of the few countries in the world that has no laws banning torture, um, much less defining it. And, you know, and that's one of the things that I think really sets us apart from so much of the rest of the world. And it's interesting because, you know, even when you when you talk about, I think it was some of the countries that have, you know, very high levels of police violence, uh, some of the countries that come to mind are places like Brazil, for example. I mean, police there kill thousands of people every year, you know, massive levels of, of police violence. El Salvador is another one. But my observation is that the countries that have these high levels of police violence are also the countries that have very high levels of social inequality. Um, it's not necessarily because countries are poor or rich, but where there's a lot of inequality. Because you can go to a lot of poor countries, um, you know, in Latin America. On the one hand, El Salvador has some of the highest levels of uh, murder in the world, very, very high levels of police violence. And then you go next door to Costa Rica and Panama, and Police violence is unusual. I mean, yes, it happens, but not to the extent that it does in their neighbors. And if you look at, if you compare the United States to, say, Canada, we're neighboring countries, and if the Canadian police kill 10 people a year, that's an outrage in Canada. And in the United States, that's a good weekend. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's a weekend. The situation is largely the same in American prisons. I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you before, but I, I have a cousin with whom I do not speak, who's a former prison guard. He beat a prisoner in the Trumbull County, Ohio jail so severely, he put the guy into a coma. He stomped him with his boots while he was cuffed. Yeah. Um, My cousin was arrested. He was fired from his job, but he was not prosecuted. This seems to be the worst that happens to violent prison guards. You might lose your job, maybe. But most of the time, there's no prosecution. Um, They get into far more trouble bringing contraband into a prison than they ever do beating a prisoner to within an inch of his life. Why the double standard when it comes to official violence like this, Paul? I think because at the end of the day, the state power rests on violence. I mean, at the end of the day, we, you know, the, the whole thing about, you know, the, the government, the government rules with the consent of the governed. I don't think people in government actually believe that. I think they really do believe that back in the real world, their power rests on the trigger pullers and their service that are ready to kill and torture all the rest of us that may or may not be down with how they govern us. And at the end of the day, um, you know, keeping, um, you know, keeping those trigger pullers and the torturers and um, the killers 
happy and basically employed and fed is, you know, I think part of the overall plan. I mean, beyond the, um, you know, beyond the things like you're mentioning about the fact that, you know, the lack of any consequences like being prosecuted, even when they get fired, virtually all these cases go to arbitration and probably mm. percent of the cops and prison guards that lose their jobs for these outrageous incidents of brutality, virtually all the time, if they fight it and go through these union procedures, virtually all the times they will get their job back. And the final insult to injury is they usually get back pay as well. They'll get the back pay and, wow. and they get their jobs back. And, um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, when you look at the overall decline in unionization among American workers, the exception to that is law enforcement. And um, and the other thing, I think that one of the misnomers or, or uh, misperceptions that a lot of people have is that um, is that police and uh, is that police are poorly paid. In some states, yes, prison guards are poorly paid in a lot of states, but in most states, the police are very well paid, and not only are they well paid, but they get benefits that the rest of us Americans can only dream about. Uh, you know, especially. Um, yeah, I read articles routinely out of California, and it'll be like the police chief of some town with like 30,000 or 50,000 people, and the police chief is pulling down half a million dollars a year in salary and benefits. Oh, yeah. And, and it's just like, you know, how no wonder they can't afford to do anything else. And when you compare this to other, um, and, and you know, and, and I know the argument is that, well, you know, they're, um, they're responsible for protecting the community and everything else. It's like, okay, well, back in the real world, you have no right to police protection, and they make that very clear. And one of the things I think about is, you know, I think we discussed it on the show when we were watching the school massacre play out in Uvalde, Texas. And I forget how many hundreds of armed cops there were at that, at that school while the children are being murdered, and not a single one of them is doing anything to stop the killing. And it's like, okay, so you look at what percentage of the town or the county budget is being spent on these heavily armed, very well-trained police, and at the end of the day, no one's ready to risk their life to save a bunch of children being murdered in front of them. And again, we mentioned this, I think, at the end of the week last week, but a lot of effort to blame the Uvalde School District police in particular and the head of that police force also in particular, but the more you look into what happened, the more you see people coming from, you know, that's right. Border Patrol, SWAT team, yeah. you know, from all Texas state. They troopers. all failed. Yeah. They all did the same thing. Absolutely right. Not go in for hours. They all failed. Senator uh, John Kennedy, who's a Republican of Louisiana, said a couple of weeks ago that if you have a problem with police violence, you should call a crackhead the next time you need help. To me, this is one of the reasons why we can't make progress on this issue. Because you have idiots in positions of authority like this guy spouting nonsense. What are your thoughts on, on silliness like this? Well, and I think this is kind of the problem as a taxpayer. I mean, I think we have, re, you know, I think we should be able to expect better than this. Because I think that, you know, saying that, um, you know, the, the alternative isn't calling a cop or calling a crackhead. Maybe the alternative is we actually have professional police that are actually dedicated to political, to public safety and to, you know, doing things to keep communities safe. And right now we don't really have that. And I think that's kind of like the bigger thing is, and I think that's one of the things that's happened in this country, especially in the last 50 years, 
uh, which is the period I've been looking at it most closely, is that it's not framed as, uh, it's framed as some type of either or, but it's a false choice. It's not the choice of between having a brutal, corrupt police force um, that's too cowardly or, or whatever to protect children um, or, you know, calling on, you know, drug addict, mentally ill drug addicts in an emergency. It's like, no, we're actually paying these people a lot of money and we're, they're given a lot of training. They're given the best of equipment in the world. And I think there's something about expecting something for your tax dollars. And, and, it, and it's interesting is that, you know, conservatives who claim to be um, all for, you know, government accountability and, you know, efficient government and things like that, they seem to be pretty bad on these issues. Like, you know, if they use those same principles to call for, okay, what's the taxpayer getting for their tax dollars when it comes to police protection and things like that, um, maybe you'd have some accountability. But the fact is that everyone in the political structure and government today, no one likes the idea of accountability. No one likes the idea of actual results. And you basically, anyone that questions why we're not getting the public safety, why we're not getting the services we're paying a pretty penny for, huge amounts of the government budgets go to these services. Why aren't we getting them? And all they have is, you know, kind of snide remarks rather than actually trying to address any of the issues. Indeed. We will leave it there. We were joined by Paul Wright. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and managing editor of both Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one more short break and come back with some closing stories. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, just continuing our complaining about ragweed. Yeah, it's <laughs> killing me. Political Misfits Allergies Edition. Man. It's grim. Um, this was a story that I, I saw this headline late last week. We didn't get a chance to mention it on the show. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the U.S., the FDA has confirmed that the U.S. officially has an Adderall shortage. You know, I just saw this. How yes. can something like that even happen? Well. We invented Adderall. Yeah, well, well, I don't know. I'll take your word for it that we invented Adderall. Um, but according to this story from over the weekend in The Guardian, uh, it is a combination of, it's a combination of uh, demand, a surge in demand, and a little bit of sort of supply chain difficulty. Um, but the F the FDA has said the largest Adderall manufacturer, Teva, is facing ongoing intermittent manufacturing delays. But and Teva uh, a couple months ago said that a labor shortage was affecting its ability to produce. We'll see. But Teva also saying the problem is demand. Um, there has been a significant rise in prescription rates across the country. I think the U.S. is uh, the biggest consumer of Adderall, I'm pretty sure. And the Guardian cites, um, man, okay, 
ADHD is mainly diagnosed in children, according to The Guardian. Although many children and adults can go undiagnosed, Adderall, the common name for amphetamine, mixed salts, can be administered to children as young as three, which to me, it seems crazy. But they cite this statistic from Attitude Magazine, which is a publication for people with ADHD, um, that during the pandemic, diagnoses of ADHD shot up and suggest parents were now spending more time with their children and thus more closely observing the behavioral patterns and struggles with studying and attention. Uh, as for adults, their coping mechanisms and systems broke down uh, and everybody wants Adderall. Now, I don't know. I, I think you have to look at, again, it's, I think can be difficult, but is important when you're talking about prescription drugs like these to walk a line that acknowledges that these drugs are really, um, you know, useful and important for some people. And also there is something to be understood by the fact that the United States is such a huge consumer of these drugs, right? What is happening? We're not genetically different no. from people. And we haven't changed over the last couple of decades, right? Why is the United States uh, such an obese country, right? Uh, almost the most in the world, I think, contending for the capital will be is like tiny island nations, right? right? Um, yeah, why are we are such enormous consumers of, of Adderall? Why is it that parents, when they spend more time with their children, think that their children need drugs to help them calm down? Like, again, I don't want to say in every case that these, I'm not a, you know, Scientologist. Right. I don't think that it, I think that these drugs are important. I don't think that they should not be prescribed. But I think we really have to look at what is driving uh, what I think is their overprescription. To the extent that we have an ad, we have a shortage of prescription amphetamines in the United States, crazy. right? Shouldn't we? Just crazy. Yeah, it is. You know, but again, this is not me saying we shouldn't have antidepressants and we shouldn't have uh, we shouldn't have drugs for ADHD because it's also that's also a real it's a real thing that people you know who am I to say people shouldn't get uh, chemical help for it, right? right? But again, it, why is everyone in our society anxious? Is everyone? suffering from generalized anxiety disorder. Maybe we've created a society where, you know, where people, we've created the conditions for anxiety to run rampant because people are correct to be anxious about their lives and their future. Anyway, yeah. that's, my, that's my little rant about the, the Adderall shortage. And apparently the baby formula shortage is still going on. Like people are still having a hard time finding baby formula. It's sort of fallen out of the headlines, but still, still kind of there. a thing. Yeah. I saw an interesting uh, piece today. Uh, I, I think it was in the in the New York Times that the Justice Department is recommending that uh, Steve Bannon be sentenced to six months in jail and a two hundred thousand dollar fine for his conviction on two counts of contempt of Congress. Now, remember when this was going on, we said almost nobody in American history is ever found guilty of contempt of Congress because what happens is Congress issues a subpoena. The people deny the subpoena, the two sides fight, Congress threatens to prosecute, and then the person comes and gives their testimony. So there were something like 31 referrals to the Justice Department for prosecution, and like four people were actually prosecuted. Well, Bannon went to the mat on this and um, refused to testify, refused to even show up. So 
I mean, what what should they do? Yeah, they have to. They have to, you know, exert their authority. They have mm-hmm. to. Otherwise, nobody's going to show up when they're subpoenaed. Yeah. to testify. Yeah, um, it's a first offense, but it's two counts. They're misdemeanors. My guess is he's not going to do six months, but I could see him doing three. Yeah, and uh, we'll see if this teaches him a lesson. It probably won't. Uh, big news for K-pop fans. Uh oh. Did you see My this? My niece is a huge K-pop fan. Oh, ask her about BTS. Uh, temporarily disbanding so the members can do their military service. I guess the oldest one, the oldest member of the the very large boy band. There are many boys in this band. Uh, <laughs> but the oldest of them is going to begin his military service, mandatory military service in South Korea at some point. And the group and their management are saying they're, they're going to stagger their service. I don't know if it's that they're going, they're different ages, right? So the service will be staggered and they look forward to <clears throat> reconvening as a group around 2025. Oh my. Yeah. Okay. I was having a conversation. I had uh, an old friend happened to be in town this weekend uh, who's from France and is now living in Germany, uh, who I knew when I was living in Taiwan. And he was talking about, you know, when, when he was out in Taiwan, he was looking for ways to do his, his civil service for France, uh, not in the actual armed forces, but to find a way to, to do it. And he ended up being able to do it through uh, teaching, teaching children oh. uh, in Taiwan. I think teaching French children through the French Institute or something. But Great. I'm not really, I feel like, I like the idea of civil service. Uh-huh. I do I don't, too. I'm not mad at the idea of mandatory civil service. Uh-huh. If it isn't learning how to wield a weapon yeah. and kill people. Sure. Right. And like theoretically, I think it is a good way to help people feel as though they are invested in the project of building and maintaining their nation and, you know, yes. engage it. It's just that in Agreed. practice, you know, like in, in practice, can you imagine what U.S. mandatory military service would be like? Or the, I mean, I don't. Yeah, it's, it seems awful. Uh, it seems like it would be awful. Although maybe it would be good for people to. I don't know some of uh, some of the most, <laughs> I guess, like passionate and uh, and effective opponents of the U.S. military industrial complex are, are veterans who get to see what it's like on the inside. Absolutely. So who knows? Maybe it would have the effect of like pulling the scales from people's eyes. Ron, uh, what's his name? Born on the Fourth of July. Ron, um, oh, his name escapes me right now. But anyway, he's he's a good friend of uh, of Bob Shear, and they. They do speeches together all over Southern California. Yeah, I mean, if Ron you, Kovic. if you are uh, willing to see the the contradictions there, you can be a very effective yeah. spokesperson about them. Also, bad news for Joe Biden. Uh, latest recession probability models by Bloomberg say 100% chance of recession in a year. Oh, my God. Which I guess is pretty easy <laughs> considering we are already in a recession, right? Yeah. Technically, we are already in a recession. So yeah, 100% it's going to happen right. in the next year. Uh, that's the, uh, the easiest prediction I think they've probably ever had to call. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, but kind of a bummer for Joe Biden, who last week was saying it's not going to happen or right. it's only it's just a little only recession. Be a little, it's a slight recession, honestly. I mean, I guess I know what it is, but still, it sounds it just sounds like someone who knows he's lying, who knows yes. you know he's lying. It's not going to happen or it'll just be small. Don't worry about it. Right. Anyway, right. we got to leave it there, folks. I want to say thanks to all of our guests today and thanks to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>